Please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. You've been in the Old Testament quite a while. Um, if you're like me, my Bible just kind of opens to 1 Samuel now. But we do need to uh, see what's going on in the New Testament as well from time to time, even though I do love the Old Testament quite a bit. So we're going to begin our uh, study in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles today. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text. <clears throat> Our Lord Jesus, as we come to these words that are from your New Testament, we recognize that they, like the ones in the Old, are all your words and they are all instructive for us. And not only that, they all lay authority over our lives. We are commanded by them, and we should follow them. But Lord, you know that we don't. You know that we seek our own way, even though that way leads to death. And so, Lord, help us to follow the words found in your scriptures, to be convicted by these words in the text today, to teach us more about you and more of what you require of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so um, as we begin this look at these three books, uh, and I've called them the pastorals quite a bit, and you may be wondering why are they called that. Well, I actually kind of did some research as to why they're called that and or how long they've been called that. And it wasn't until the early 18th century that the, one of the first commentators first called these three books the, the uh, pastoral epistles. Um, and why did he name them that? Well, as we study through them, we're going to see that Paul, the apostle, the author of all three of them, has given instructions to two different men, Timothy and Titus. And these two men were instructed and positioned to be pastors in the new church, in the capital C church, the, the church that was growing throughout that part of the world at the time. The apostles were growing old, and they were dying at the hands of people from the farthest reaches of the known world. The apostles were going out, and they were sharing the, the gospel in the uttermost parts of the world. And so now's the time to begin raising up men to lead these churches into this new era which the apostles are all going to be dead. And so Paul is passing the torch to these guys who are relatively young, relatively meaning younger than Paul and the other apostles. And in these books, he gives instructions to them on how to, to be pastors, how to be pastors of their individual congregations, how to be pastors uh, when it comes to the church at large. Uh, these instructions were given on how they should choose their leadership, how they should deal with issues within the church, false teachers, other discipline in the church, how they are to preach the gospel. Paul gives us a very clear delivery and a clear testimony to the power of the gospel, where the power of the gospel rests in Jesus Christ alone. So as pastorals, these books remain highly instructive to us then, not only to pastors, but also to the whole church at large. And so when we use those that term, don't think, well, this isn't for me, I'm not a pastor. 
Yes, it's for you. It's for all of us. And I'd say that it's the neglect and the misinterpretation of these books that has led to where the church is today and as a state of disrepair. A lot of our denominations, uh, conservative denominations across the country have recently had their denominational meetings, the ARP being one of those, and almost across the board, those denominations have noted declines in membership and loss of churches. And so why is this happening? Well, I think that it's one of one of the reasons is because we neglect the words that we find in these epistles. We are capitulating on social issues rather than concentrating our efforts to preach the true gospel to the lost, both in word and deed. Churches become so afraid of offending someone that it may have chosen to offend no one by preaching a false gospel delivered by false preachers to a false church. Unless we think we are immune, we, just like everyone else, have the same tendencies to become lovers of man rather than lovers of God, lovers of self rather than lovers of others, and lovers of a lie rather than the truth. And that's why we are working through these books. That's why they are important for us, so that we as a new church will be grounded in the instructions given for all time to the capital C church with absolute authority. So as we consider these opening verses, we're going to look at two main ideas, the authority of an apostle and the responsibility of all believers. And so with that, let's look at the text, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. Let's stand together as I read these few verses in honor of the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is God's Word. You can be seated. It's much different than reading from a narrative in the Old Testament, right? <laughs> a few less words there, a few hundred less words. Uh, so let's begin with the authority of an apostle, right here where Paul starts off in his letter. So this letter starts off like many do in the New Testament with this standard greeting that you'd find in many of the letters that day, a Christian, secular, either one. We have the writer announcing himself, giving his title, and then naming the recipient of the letter and his or her title. In this case, it's Timothy. Then it followed with some sort of salutation, which is where we have the grace, mercy, and peace from the Lord there following that. However, we know that this isn't just an ordinary greeting because this is Scripture. It's instructive for us and it teaches us. And so let's break this little bit down as we go through this and see what it has to do with us here today. So first, Paul announces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a term that gets thrown around quite a bit today. Um, if you watch any sort of religious television programming, there may be any number of apostles in the audience um, there. It's not funny. Uh, I shouldn't laugh. But along with bishops and elders and many other self-given titles, I recently 
watched one. Sometimes I watch that stuff. Um, and so there's this crowd of people, and they walk through, and they give them all a microphone, and they're all telling who they are, and there's probably like 30 apostles in the audience. Who knew? Um, what do we do with that? Um, so what is, is that, does that actually make someone apostle? They just kind of call themselves that, or maybe their church calls them that, or whatever. Does it make them that if, if they uh, call themselves that? Well, let's look at what are some criteria that have to do with apostleship. Well, uh, biblically and historically, some criteria have been established, and it really boils down to two things. They witnessed, or they bore witness to the actual resurrected Jesus Christ. Uh, they saw him physically, and then they were called by Jesus personally and tasked with building the foundations of the church, not a church, the church. And so, of course, we have the 11 disciples of Jesus that were mentioned in, in the, the, the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We started with 12, remember, and then we lost Judas because he betrayed Jesus. And then the very beginning of the book of Acts, Judas is replaced by a man named Matthias, making it 12 again. And so these are the 12 that were specifically tasked by Jesus, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and planting churches, making churches. Well, then it comes to Paul. Well, where did Paul come in? Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. I think this is good for us to read this conversion of Paul, or of Saul at the time. Um... We're going to be looking at three different books in succession by him, so we won't do this every time, but I think it's good for us to do this now to understand where does his call as an apostle come from. So I'm going to read through this first bit here of Acts chapter 9, talking about his conversion. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of, at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to a street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done 
to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, and I love this, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, Go, for he he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you by the road, or on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And of course, we could go on throughout the book of Acts and read about what Saul has done. And we can read these letters that he sends to the church as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He meets these qualifications, even though he didn't walk with Jesus during his ministry. He is a true apostle of the Lord. And so this office is now closed for obvious reasons. So anyone who calls themselves that today is the equivalent of me, or is the equivalent of me calling myself Batman. It's cute, but it doesn't actually make me Batman. Uh, If we had any doubt as to Paul's credentials, we are told here that he is an apostle by the command of our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. On whose authority does Paul call himself an apostle then? According to the Father and the Son, on their authority. Paul doesn't take his office arrogantly, even though we might want to read that into that. It may seem that way sometimes, because we can see in other books that he's not that way at all. But he does hold that office, and therefore he carries with him the authority of that office. And so then what does that mean for us? Well, it means that the things that we read from this book, much like the rest of Scripture, have authority over our lives. And if if for a moment we begin to think, okay, I already know that, then we're probably starting to head out the door. We need to remember that this book has authority over our lives, and the things in it are authoritative, and they instruct us on how we should be and what we should do. We don't have the opportunity to pick and choose the doctrines that we like and don't like. We do according to what we are told and the mandates found in this text that's important for us to grab a hold of as a church. So where people tend to go wrong with this book, in particular, I think, is they attempt, they attempt to make it about cultural distinctives, saying, well, you have to understand Paul was writing in a different time and place, and what he said doesn't work for today. Which part doesn't work for today? The part about who should be elders and deacons? The part about what we should pray for the church, part about the nature of the gospel, the nature of Jesus Christ as our Savior, which part does it work for today? You see, if we begin to change some of the things that make us feel better, everything becomes endangered, every single bit of it. We aren't allowed to change the words of Scripture because they aren't ours to change. Whether we like them or not, it has to do more with our sin and our desire to be God than anything. That want, to, that want to change his word comes from our sin, not from the word being bad. These words are for us to follow as best we can 
and do as his people set aside. We're his people set aside from the foundations of the earth. We're the people that Jesus died to save. Therefore, we don't concern ourselves then with the worldly associations, worldly norms. Our norm is scripture and scripture alone. That's important because we're going to see some issues in this text that may be difficult for us, all of us. And there may be times that I think not only we're going to spend time from the pulpit with it, but that we should talk about it afterwards, together as a church. Let's talk through this. Let's go through this together. And I think it's a good thing, again, because our sinful desire is to do what with the authority of God? To reject it and to go our own way. The sinful desire of a pastor is to reject Scripture and to find his own way. It's not different for a pastor than it is for his congregation. We should be careful with that. And that's why these books are particularly important for us. They remind us of the authority of God over his church. And next, the responsibility of all believers. So next we come to Timothy, Paul's recipient of the, the letter. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. He calls him this true child likely because uh, Timothy's conversion is a direct um, is tied directly to Paul's time during his first missionary journey in a place called Lystra where Timothy is from and then Timothy starts following Paul around some some think that maybe Timothy was even an older teenager when he started following Paul maybe a little bit older but he was young compared to the apostle. Throughout Paul's letters, we see he and Timothy working very closely together. Timothy was likely again with him in his 20s, and now he's receiving this man or this letter probably in his mid 30s. Again, we're not given a lot of ages, but that's the best guess. And from from the other letters uh, in the New Testament, and for these three that we're looking at, uh, we get the idea that Timothy was probably an introverted man, a man after my own heart. Uh, He was probably very shy, even maybe a sickly person. Paul gives him instructions on just some medical issues even, uh, struggling several different ailments in his life. But even with this apparent inability, Paul still calls him to the great work of the ministry of his church, of his own church, and even to the church at large. Paul sends him to various places in order to see that issues in the church are taken care of. And so Paul's salutation then to him, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, is appropriate because Timothy has a difficult job. Grace, mercy, and peace are definitely important and needed in that time. And so I think that many times throughout these two letters, and Timothy, or to Timothy, Paul is going to give him instructions directly. And we have to be careful with this, because even though that Paul and Timothy were friends, were very close friends, Paul's tone isn't of giving advice. Again, he's not giving us advice, he's giving us directives. We see him saying, I urge you, I charge you, Command and teach these things. Timothy understood these words to be ones that made him responsible as a leader in the church. 
Timothy wasn't given an option to consider his apparent inabilities. Where, well, Paul, I don't really like talking to people, so I'm going to go do something else. Um, thanks for the suggestions, though. That wasn't really their interaction at all. We never read that Timothy was reluctant in his charge, though he may not have been uh, pastor material. The world saw differently, and they saw a man who was after the will and the service of the Lord. The book of Hebrews in chapter 13 even tells us that probably Timothy was imprisoned at some time in his life, which means he stood up against something and someone didn't like it. Church history teaches that Timothy was martyred when he tried to stop a parade that was dedicated to the goddess Diana. Definitely a man after my own heart. A man of zeal for his faith and of lordship of Christ, and he went to his death a martyr and now rests with our Lord Jesus. And so what do we do with this? With Timothy. He was a man that clung to his responsibilities despite his personal frailties. He was a man that put his hands to the plow, as Jesus said, and did not look back. He was about the work of the Lord. When it comes to our responsibilities concerning our faith, concerning the church, our church, here, we have no other option then but to do the same. For some of us, that could mean serving in the office of pastor, a particular calling that Paul talks about, but not higher than any other, just another servant of the Lord. He talks about other offices, elders and deacons, offices that men in particular with particular qualifications in the church can serve. But what about the rest? Well, throughout these books, we are taught how to pray. We are taught that we should pray, that we are responsible to pray. Pray for all types of people, to pray for our rulers, our families. Are we doing that? We're commanded to be on guard against false teachers. Are we doing that? Do we know the truth well enough to recognize a counterfeit? Or will we too be swept away by every wind of doctrine, finding teachers to tickle our ears rather than convict our hearts? Something that Paul warns Timothy against later. Are we honoring folks who are shamed and forgotten by the world? Paul instructs Timothy many times to do that. We are commanded to do that here in these pages. Are we doing it? Or do we love the one in the mirror too much? Are we setting our hopes on the riches of this world or on Jesus, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy? We are instructed this way in these books. Are we doing that? If you're like me, I think we'll see that our responsibilities as a member of Christ's church are daunting and sometimes insurmountable. We do just kind of want to crawl away and be like, okay, I'm done, I need a rest, I just want to take a break. Who can even do any of them? Who can attain any of the offices or do any of the things that we're asked to do? It seems impossible. Well, we know one who did them and for our sakes made us righteous even though we couldn't or wouldn't follow his commands. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows 
This is his church. Remember, he is head of the church. Our Lord Jesus knows that we'll continue to be imperfect church members and leaders. Every one of us will continue to be imperfect, continuing to reject, reject the authority of the word, our responsibilities with regards to the church. Yet what did he do for us anyway? He died for us. He died for his church, and he calls us to go and to serve. So even while we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive in Christ. He raised us up, seated us with him in heavenly places. He gives us churches to worship in, to learn what it means to serve and obey, to learn more about him. We are here together because of his grace, mercy, and peace in our lives. We don't deserve to do this. He has given us this every single time we meet together, brothers and sisters. It is an honor and a privilege that he allows us to still do this. And we are thankful. The commands of our Lord concerning his church aren't to be a noose around our neck, but a balm in a world that rejects all authority. And so let's not see the church as a weight. Let's not see it as a burden. Let's see it as an honor, something that he has given us, something that is to be medicine for our souls. They should should be sweet to us this time together because it should remind us that he is making us more and more like himself. And so in conclusion, as we go through this book and the other two books with it, 2 Timothy and Titus, Let us remember that these pastoral books have authority over our lives, whether we're pastors or not. Brothers and sisters, let us submit to the authority of God in our lives and ask him to show us more and more areas in our lives where we are refusing to submit. He will do that. He will do that through the pages of these books. And they also instruct us on our responsibilities. So brothers and sisters, let us search out these scriptures that we might learn what Jesus expects from us, his people, concerning his church. Again, not to earn his love. He loves us without our input. We do so because we love him. We love his church. And so let us seek out more and more how we might serve his church. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're thankful for not only your authority, but also our responsibilities, because it means that you love us. The fact that we are here and have a church to serve, that we have a God to obey and serve, means that you did not reject us, even though we reject you still. And so, Lord, convict our hearts of sin. Show us the grace, mercy, and peace that we need to grow this church and to see it be a light on a hill so that the world might know that you are Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.